Did you ever blow bubbles when you were a kid? Yeah. He's back in town. He wants you to call him. Oh, my God. <laughs> Christopher take all this out. He's, the thing is, he'd probably leave this part in. Yeah, so uh, welcome to Art Gab. Um, this is Kendra. Well, <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to introduce... And this is Ashley. Yeah. <laughs> to, to my left here is Kendra. <laughs> and, and speaking with Ashley. That was Ashley. Yeah. I was, I was trying to be nice and, like, and, and like introduce you, but it just sounded like I was trying to be you. But Okay, should we start over? No, I'm going with it. Okay, okay. okay I don't so, know. My laugh was really loud. <laughs> um, so what did you do this weekend, Ashley? Um, I went to Edgefield. Have you guys been to Edgefield? Dude, I, I went yeah. with you to see Florence and the Machine. Remember that? Oh yeah, we saw Florence and the Machine there. They don't have a the concert set up yet, but it was nice to enjoy the soaking pool and whatnot. We're gonna go see the National this summer. Oh, Ooh, when nice. are they coming? I love them. I think it's the end of August. Nice. Oh, cool. Yeah, we saw Cake and Portugal the Man the last couple of years, and it was really good shows. Nice. Very cool. I'm gonna see. Um, I almost said Iron Maiden. <laughs> um. Iron and Wine. Oh, nice. At the end of August. All the fun shows. So, uh, we need to introduce our guests. Oh, but, um, yeah. (laughs) What did you guys do this week? What, uh, I I started a series of cave paintings that I'm really excited about. And Oliver has been saying, um, not fair a lot. Have you noticed that? He's like, not fair. Has he been reading the newspaper? Right, that's basically what, yeah, exactly. (laughs) So those are my two announcements. That's the only thing I Starting some paintings and watching Oliver say some ridiculous things. He says camouflage too. His new favorite word. Can you spell it? No. I can't. I can't either. Yeah. Yeah. That's a hard And 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 yes, we have Anya, Robert's Tony with us today. Yeah. Um, do you want to tell us about your weekend before I officially announce it or uh, introduce you? Yeah. I I seem to have no recollection of what I did on Friday. Uh but I did some painting yesterday and uh, went to went up for pizza, which was good. Chivo down in Division, my favorite spot. Nice. nice. What kind of pizza? Anything fancy? Yeah, it was their special Bianca pizza. It had pesto, mozzarella, chev, red peppers, cherry tomatoes, and calamari rolls. Nice. Really Wait, where good. was Chivo? Okay. Yeah. It's a it's on division just a little bit east of National. Oh, okay. Mm-hmm. I think you said cheapo. I was like, oh, <laughs> cheapo, cheapo. If only. <laughs> it's funny because like I I read like a while ago that like Portland has the best pizza. Was voted the best pizza. I'm That's like, bullshit. I think it's just the weirdest pizza is what they're trying to say. That's what I think because that's what the article is saying is that that's how they we just have the weirdest pizza most inventive I think I moved here from New York City and this is just blasphemy yeah Yeah. that's what I thought too it's like Chicago and it beat out Chicago and New York there's no way I think that's what I think that's what they're saying though it's like um, there's no no tradition here so people seem more free to like try new things all the godless people it's kind of like art right we don't have the traditions that New York and Chicago and LA have. We just like to make things weird, but like, yeah. And then on one of like Facebook or somebody was posting like, does pineapple belong on pizza? And I, that's the great debate of our time. You guys, pineapple is delicious. I feel like you, you could put it on anything. whatever you want. Anything. It should be on tacos. Ooh. Yeah. 
I think we're going to lose like half our listenership. Mm-hmm. Half of our two listeners are going to probably not listen to us anymore <laughs> because of pineapple. Yeah, we're going to lose the other one. Right, Thank now, you. Now on to politics. Okay. Um, so we should, yeah. No, okay. All right. <clears throat> Official now. We're going to officially start. Anya Roberts Tony received her BA from Brown University in Providence, Rhode Island, and her MFA from Pacific Northwest College of Art in Portland, Oregon. Her work has been exhibited locally and nationally at locations including Disjecta Contemporary Art Center, Dust to Dust Projects, the Gallery at Cerulean, Killjoy Collective, Pond Gallery, the Portland Pataphysical Society, um, the office at Russo Lee Gallery, um, Stephanie Sheffis Projects, and Somos Gallery. Um, and she is a recent recipient of the Stumptown Artist Fellowship. Originally from Seattle, Washington, she currently lives and works in Portland, Oregon. So Anya, welcome to ArtGab. Thanks so much for having me. <laughs> yeah, thanks for being here. Um, so just to start it off, uh, do you want to describe who you are and what you do? Sure. Um, I'm a painter. I, um, I've lived in Portland for, God, I think about eight years. I moved here from New York City. Um, I feel like you covered big things in my bio that were fascinating. Um, but I, uh, I work at a nonprofit that does art classes and performance opportunities for adults with developmental disabilities. I do communications and marketing and some other stuff for them. And um, when I'm not there, I'm usually in my home studio making paintings. Nice. And what is your process like in the studio? Um, my process kind of ebbs and flows in different ways. Um, I have realized over the last couple of years, one of the biggest, most important parts of my process is like going to a coffee shop, getting a latte, and then just writing in my notebook and sometimes it's notes for paintings and sometimes it's like trying to figure out what I've already made or parsing through like what I've learned about another artist recently um but that that's a really important way for me to sort of get ready to go to the studio um but then lately when I'm in my studio I start with mixing a bunch of colors and a lot of my work lately is sort of still life-esque so I will like put down a base color on a canvas and then just sort of like block out like the base of a shape and a horizon line. And then from there, it's just sort of searching for an image. So like what are the themes in your work, if any? Like, Yeah. You mentioned still less, but what, what's the, what's, what, why? Yeah. What are the themes behind this? Um, well, for the last like six years or so, I've been thinking a lot about femininity like how we learn femininity from particularly media images. Um, but then also thinking about just the female body and this um, this like cultural ambivalence where um, there's this severe uh, desire for the female body, but at the same time, um, this this fear and distrust of the female body. And so uh, the you know that leads to this really high, um, high level of violence against women. And so I've been kind of just searching for different ways of representing the body in a non, in a non-traditional way, often through, uh, objects and images that feel feminine in some way. Um, but I've been trying to keep that ambivalence present in the painting so that there's like elements of desire, but then also elements of either something dissolving or, um, a discomfort or a trepidation, 
To kind of follow up on that, like, obviously one of the big challenges of having a podcast about art is like, you can't see the artwork. Do you want to describe one of these paintings? For Yeah. Um, the paintings uh, that we're looking at right now were in the show that I had at Stephanie Sheffa's projects in January in her annex space. Um, and the show was called Soft Curses. And it was um, five small to medium paintings that um, each one in some way referenced uh, this sort of loose, um, what would you say, like loose representation of a ring of flowers. Mm -hmm. And I'd been thinking a lot about ceramics in the last year or so, um, like the feminine nature of figurines and how figurines are a way of sort of um, like like claiming who you are uh, in this very like domestic object. Um, and with the, so yeah, thinking about, um, uh, about objects in space and I'd been looking at a lot of ceramic flowers. And so these, these rings of flowers was sort of um, just the, the impetus for making the painting um, and having something to explore in a painterly way that could involve like those elements of desire, but also like that feeling of something being not right. Um, but I, I came to that body of work like right after the Kavanaugh hearings mm. and like just feeling really like frustrated and, and confused. And I was um, reading Rebecca Solnit's Hope in the Dark and was thinking about like the power of hopefulness and um, the power of like collective intent and so these five paintings I was thinking of as being this sort of like hopeful manifestation for change um thinking about like different artists that were feeling important and powerful to me and sort of trying to imbue that um like borrowed power from them and also like my own personal like deep desire for change um, almost as if these paintings were kind of like like a mini ritual or like <laughs> a, a space for ritual. So like just thinking about, um, you said kind of ceramics, is that like another thing you do? Do you have like, or is it just strictly painting or? I'm strictly painting and um, I don't know, I, as I've become interested in ceramics, I, I keep kind of considering that option, but really... Um, my real interest as a painter is to to paint um, the idea of objects or or things that that don't exist or can't exist, and to sort of to find ways of of bringing them into representation. I think for me, the 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 element of searching for the image in paint is what excites me the most. Mm -hmm. um, and so, like more recently, I've been working um, on paintings that are. Um, are more still life like than than these paintings from soft curses um but that have this sort of um ground sort of background wall horizon line and then some sort of object um that casts shadows or that has this sort of like upright presence but at the same time like couldn't be an object but for me in some way represents the female body in this new way i um I've been interested in, for a long time in the idea of the the painting being consumed by the viewer. I don't know if that's John Berger or if it's also um, 
some other theorists, but I, I, have, I have problems with that understanding. But at the same time, I, I do understand it. But I've been thinking about um, ways for the painting to retain something that can't be taken by the viewer. Right. Um, so trying to find different ways for paintings to have secrets. It kind of reminds me of like the idea that if you buy a painting, you're kind of buying the story of the artist too. Mm -hmm. So in a way you're kind of like, and, and so, yeah, so having something about the artwork that can never really be owned by mm -hmm. anybody is kind of interesting. Uh, a few minutes ago, you mentioned ritual in your work and how you're trying to, you said you're using rituals. <laughs> what did you say? You're using rituals to bring up, manifest change, change. Mm -hmm. yeah so do you see those rituals in the process of making the work or do you see the rituals as depicted like like are you depicting evidence of rituals in the work itself do you see what I'm saying yeah I think for for that body of work I think it got complicated because it was sort of both mm -hmm. um but I I guess I've been thinking about and I, I am so not a spiritual person but um the idea of collective energy and like collective intent and um like bringing, bringing that desire and hopefulness into the paintings, maybe potentially having some way of then going through the painting and out into the world. And, and maybe that is um, very ideological. I guess as an artist, you have to have some hopefulness that your work is creating positive impact. Going to that series of work that we'll post on our um, website so people could see, but... Um, I noticed there's a lot of dark and light. Is there anything behind that or just kind of like black and white and gray and then and then like pink it's like and really yellow. dark backgrounds but then like really soft pastel flowers mm -hmm. and stuff. It's really striking to the eyes, so I was just wondering if there was a theme or reason or just Yeah, I think my work has just been really influenced by fashion photography over the years. <laughs> um I see. And I, I think that that in many ways has dictated my expectations of light in paintings. Um, and I think, you know, for me, there are so many things that worry me about like the influence of media images um, and just, um, but I'm, I'm also interested in like my own complicity that I, that I am a woman who grew up on those images and they, they are sort of like embedded in how I, see the world and, and what I want to see in images and yeah that complicity is interesting to me and I don't want to erase it yeah um it kind of answers the next question so I might just jump over that um you, unless you the want another question no oh yeah I was gonna say we didn't we didn't actually answer the do you want me to, well, no, no. do you want to keep talking about color a little bit more we can what else do you want to say about color you look like you're eager to Oh, I, it's just an obvious Anya question. I've been thinking about color lately because I'm I'm currently letting color come in a lot more than I had been for a while. I think what it comes down to is I just I think color is really sexy. Mm -hmm. I like I I think that there are some colors that just have this like really high level of attraction for me, um, and it's it's like they're they're very specific. It's like there's a a hot pink and a sort of hot. My Little Pony Lavender that I just find really exciting or like pink and red together um, and cadmium chartreuse. There are these colors that I just, I think that are so like um, desirous. Um, and I think that I use color to draw people in. Uh -huh. um, and 
yeah, I just, I think that there's this sensuousness to color, but at the same time, I'm really interested in like really dark darks and murky neutral colors as a way to sort of ground those intense colors. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I think I'm, I'm interested in, in like accessing something in the viewer that's more psychological that like will pull them in if these colors speak to them. Yeah. I love the My Little Pony analogy because <laughs> I'm like, we're all like 80s, 90s kids. So oh, yes. like, got a My Little Pony purple. Yeah. I totally like knew what you're talking about when you described it. <laughs> it are like enticing colors within the subject. I mean, there is, like you said, there is a darkness to it. So it's, I love how it's like drawing you in and then like whack, smacking you upside the head. With there, this. There's some Mike Kelly quote that I came across a long time ago about how he was interested in creating a sense of the familiar for his viewers so that they would come closer and closer and feel like, yes, this is for me. I am like, I am safe here. And then only once they were that close, did they realize like, oh my God, this is fucked. Mm-hmm. And I mean, yeah, I think in Mike Kelly and I are, are not similar in many ways. Um, but I think about that a lot as, um, I think the familiar is really important in my work. I think that's why I'm drawn to still life. It's something that viewers automatically understand mm-hmm. in a way that I think does make them feel safe that they can come forward. And especially in painting, I feel like they're so many people feel that they can't understand painting and it makes them, I think, shy away. Um, and so I'm always looking for ways of making people feel comfortable so they can really get into it. Yeah. I want to, I want to get through all our questions, but I also want to like respond to what you said. Cause it is interesting. Like, well, you mentioned other artists, right? So, so are there other artists that really influence you? Uh, like, totally. Um, or that you would like to be considered like compared to or in the same camp of? Yeah. Uh, it's funny. I, I feel like Instagram has become this really great tool for me in the last couple of years because it's helped me to dis- discover a lot of artists that I wouldn't have known about otherwise. Um, and one of the artists uh, that I've really been looking at a lot is a young artist in LA named Katarina Olshbar. And she does these large scale, somewhat surrealist paintings of like frolicking horses wearing stilettos or <laughs> or or giant stiletto heels that kind of look like animals or um like the the figures are overlapping and they're in this like strange sort of abstract space I don't know they're, they're super exciting um so she's somebody that I definitely look at a lot um I really I have this big crush on LA in general. There are just so many really exciting women artists making work down there. Um, but then I think you, you asked like artists that I would want to be compared to, you know, my, my big one would always probably be Marlena Dumas. Mm-hmm. Cause she's super cool. Um, Kay, uh, Kay Donaghy. I think her paintings are just glorious. Do you want to describe both of their work? Yeah. Um, Marlena Dumas is a South African painter who is based, I think, in Amsterdam. She's most well known for sort of loose figurative paintings um, about apartheid, but also really sexual, sensuous paintings. Recently, they've kind of felt more more romantic than erotic, but um, she just has this really incredible sort of jewel-like color palette and... uh, like an immediacy and lusciousness to the way that she paints. That's really exciting. 
Um, and then Kay Donachi, I think is, oh God, I maybe either British or Scottish. Um, and she makes small scale paintings that are generally of women's faces, but then sometimes like overlapping an outdoor scene mm-hmm. and they have this dreaminess to them where my work has this high level of contrast hers has this very low level of contrast like really deep purples and then like a slightly lighter purple for the highlight and so I think your your eyes have to adjust to see them Mm. I mean I've really only ever seen them on the internet so yeah I I would really like to see her work in person Nice. There was a series of paintings by um, Chris Ophelia mm-hmm. that were like that dark, mm-hmm. dark blue next to like a slightly lighter blue. I mm-hmm. love that. Like, yeah. like as a viewer, you kind of have to work. You have to work for it, and that's yeah. exciting. Yeah. Another artist that I've just been enamored with for a long time is Cecily Brown, and I think um, you know because she does very, um, I would say abstract, but I guess she goes through phases of figuration that I think she's sort of back to right now. Over the years, as I've realized how much so many of my favorite artists work so abstractly like Cecily Brown, um, I've sort of been, you know, I I will always be a figurative artist, but it's made me sort of shift more into that middle ground between figuration and abstraction because I really want paint to be able to just be paint. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Not always locked to the image. Okay. So have you been doing art a long time? Like, did you do it in your childhood? Do you have memories of that? Yeah, I've been making art since I was a little kid. I was super into drawing even when I was like, I don't know, three. I remember drawing in church as a kid. But I I always really enjoyed drawing until I was probably in mid-high school. And I remember thinking that painting was really intimidating. Like, oh dear God, you have to mix every color. How horrifying. But I started painting towards the end of high school and I think became a fairly immediate convert and haven't really enjoyed drawing since. But I I majored in art in undergrad and then I moved to New York City for about five years and I didn't do much art while I was there. I think it was just, there was so much happening in the city and it was just um, a little overwhelming. Um, And in part, I left New York really so that I could uh, try to be an artist. And so after I was in Portland for about a year, I applied to grad school and uh, it was a really great experience for me. So yeah, I've been making art for a long time. Nice. Let's do a crazy one. He'll make this flow we'll better just, than we, we are. We'll totally make it flow. <laughs> okay. What's your favorite toast topping? <laughs> My favorite toast topping depends on the time of day. Mm-hmm. I would say my morning toast topping is uh, butter. My mm-hmm. midday toast topping is cheese and avocado. Not to be confused with hipster avocado toast. I made this up myself. Well, and and what kind of cheese are we talking here? Uh, Beecher's cheddar. Okay. Mm-hmm. Always. No brie. Never. <laughs> Sounds like a terrible that idea. That would be horrible with avocado. Yeah. yeah. It's like all the mushiness together. Yeah, they don't belong together. Yeah. Yeah. I feel like you're trying to set me up for my, my toast injury story. Oh, I have no idea what you're talking about. What are you Secret. talking about? <laughs> there's no, there's nothing there. Do you want to tell us about this toast injury? I've had a really big problem recently with eating toast and getting toast in my eyes. It seems like something that would have happened earlier in my life, and yet it's happened twice in the last two weeks. <laughs> I hope we toast? can touch on that toast in my eye, like oh. like crumbs in my eyeball. You got toast in your eyes. I got Lisa? toast in my eye. Oh man, yeah. How I feel does... like I have like many, many 
eye injury stories of getting things in my eye, but lately it's toast. Once it was walking down the street in New York City over a subway grate and having something fly in my eye, and uh, Edie is grooming herself. <laughs> She's um, very itchy today. And getting home and looking in the mirror and seeing that there was like a third of an inch tall piece of flat metal that was on my eyeball. Oh, gosh. So, yeah. Oh, my, my gosh. My eyes are like magnets for weird, sharp things. <laughs> toast, <laughs> toast included. But how do you get toast in your eye? Um, really crunchy toast <laughs> held up to one's face. Just like you eat ricochets. it. It's ricochet. Ricochet is yeah. the word. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. The shrapnel. Mm-hmm. I got toast shrapnel. It bounces mm. off the avocado and it goes straight to the there eye. Was it, it, there was no avocado present in either oh. of these injury situations, so I feel that perhaps the avocado is the armor necessary to protect uh-huh. oneself from toast crumbs. Yeah, like it would yeah. have held the, the crumbs down, mm-hmm. controlled them a little bit more. Yeah. Live and learn. <laughs> so you lived in New York, like, and you moved here. Um, do you find that the art scene is a little different here in New York, or is it? Exactly the same. Well, it's got to be a lot different, I would think, but I don't know. I it's really different. I think that the Portland art world is uh, is struggling in a lot of ways. Um, we have um, a lot of great um, spaces for emerging artists, but but there's really no clear trajectory for moving up. And I think in New York, there are just so many more opportunities, so many more galleries, um, so many more opportunities to be inspired as an artist um, and to see different possibilities. I think it's easy in Portland for it to feel like there is one way to make art. Whereas in a city like New York, there are so many different trajectories. Someone once told me that, yeah, there's more art. There are more artists in New York than there are in Portland, but the ratio of collector to artist in New York is just so much better. So there's basically, yeah, there's more artists, but there's a lot more people buying art too. Mm-hmm. There's just not a lot of collectors here. Is that kind yeah, of Yeah, I mean, what... I feel like the, the the artists themselves in Portland are expected to hold up the art world in a way that is not true in other cities. In other cities, there's more participation from non-artists. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas, you know, here, I feel like, you know, we're, we're all talking about how we should be buying art from each other, like how to become a young collector as an artist. And I, I think that's important, but it's also um, we we need people who are not artists to um, to engage with the art world, um, to feel that it's um, for them as well and and to really invest, because as we have more businesses coming to Portland, more people from other cities coming mm-hmm. um I'm seeing a, a rise in like design and craft, but I'm not seeing more resources going to fine art. Mm-hmm. And I mean, we all know that we're losing all these exciting art spaces. Yeah. That's a good way to think about it though. Like more people need to be involved that aren't directly making the art, I feel like. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And that's the difference. Yeah. Yeah, and I mean, I think people are happy to spend a couple hundred dollars on a meal here, um, but a couple hundred dollars on a painting is not, they're not used to it. And I think, mm-hmm. um, I mean, I personally feel like, um, I mean, a painting is something, it's powerful, it's, you interact with it unlike anything else, it's, it's something that will, you'll have your whole life. One of a kind. It's one of a kind. Right. It's something you give to your kids. It's like, it's something that's, I, I feel like um, it should, it's, 
much better investment than a meal or a car or a TV. And people are very happy to spend money on those things, but yeah. I think wrapping their brain around buying art is just it's a learning curve, I guess, or an acceptance curve. Yeah, and I mean, my, my husband and I have bought a couple pieces in the last few years, and it's been sort of eye-opening for me to realize how empowering it feels to buy a piece of art. And like the first one that we bought... Uh, was at National, a piece mm-hmm. by Ty Ennis. And um, it was in the back room for months, this beautiful, small, uh, like, ink drawing slash painting of an oyster on, on like, a flannel pattern background. It's it's really exquisite. And realizing one day that that one day we were going to walk into the back room and it wasn't going to be there and and realizing how, how unacceptable that was. Like, we had to have this. Mm-hmm. And it... It gave me sort of an insight into into potentially what somebody might one day feel about my work and that that's sort of an exciting thing to strive for. Um, we bought a couple of pieces since then um, that, again, just felt like we, we have to have these. But also I'm in a drawing exchange. And um, so, you know, every session I put in two drawings and then I get to take two drawings out. And that's also been really exciting to start collecting work by artists that I don't know. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Speaking of like showing work and sharing work and um, and having your work possibly be live in other people's homes, have you had any memorable responses to your work that you <laughs> thought were funny or whatever? I I'm not remembering a funny one, but um, I had a show at Pataphysical Society uh, in. Old Town a couple months ago, and uh, at the end of the evening, like it was mainly just me and a couple of friends sitting around and drinking some wine, and there was this young guy who, um, who was just kind of walking back and forth, like you know, looking at the seven paintings in a row and then going back to the beginning and like going down the line again, just really quietly, super close by himself, and like you know, he totally knew that like the gallery was pretty much closed, like we're all just sitting around hanging out, fucking around. Um, But you could tell that he was having one of those experiences of like, I can't leave yet. And I've definitely had that um, like down in LA. I think it was like a Ross and Crow show that was just blowing my mind and this feeling of like, I just have to keep going down the line and looking again. Don't make me leave. And that was really exciting for me to just like watch this guy who was just, Mm -hmm. he was, uh, he was in it. So it was a cool thing to have happen. So you're going to see the National at the Edgefield in uh, August. Does music play a part in your creating process? Do you have like music you like to listen to in the studio or podcasts? Or I feel like Kendra's smiling really big because Kendra and I used to share a studio, and oh. she probably remembers the weird things I used to blast. I think <laughs> I think that was during my period of like listening to like transitioning from listening to like a lot of Lana Del Rey to listening to a lot of Hole. So I'm sorry. Uh-huh. We listened um, to a lot of Nirvana too. We did. Um, we did. But for the last couple years, I've listened to almost completely PJ Harvey in my studio. Hmm. I have a, a like an early '90s boombox, so it's all CDs, and my CDs all skip because I touch them with paint hands. <laughs> um, but yeah, it's a lot of PJ Harvey. A little bit of I don't know for some reason like other things get in every once in a while, but like. Portugal the Man, their new CD, I've probably listened to a hundred times at least. I've been listening to Tame Impala lately. A little bit of KMHD. Mm-hmm. Their Friday is fun. The Baby Boomer. 
<laughs> when you look at your paintings afterwards, do you do you think do they remind you of certain songs? I hope my paintings remind me of P.J. Harvey. I mean, that's like the true goal in life. Uh, that's why like I don't listen to news anymore angry while I'm woman. painting. Yeah, because no. then I start to remember things, and that's not mm-hmm. good. No, I don't know. I I hope that they can be imbued with P.J. Harvey's passion in some way. <laughs> She's amazing. Okay, what was the last gift you gave someone? I know, it's a good one. It's a good question, right? Besides the gift of coming here today. You're welcome. <laughs> She's like, my presence. <laughs> I gave my husband a pair of sheepskin slippers from this place in Vermont called Shepherd's Flock that I'm really in love with because you go to their website and it's basically like, no, we don't do internet orders. Yes, you must make a phone call to place your order. If you don't like all of our terms, here are links to all these other slipper manufacturers that will probably meet your needs. Uh, It's like the most obnoxiously hilarious website and their product is fantastic. This is my product (laughs) placement advertisement. Like everyone needs to get slippers from Shepherd's Flock. They're the best slippers in the whole world. But you have to make a call. by Shepherd's Flock. Okay, Mm -hmm. good. We'll make sure to put that up. I like that because it's almost like they know their product is so good that it's like, well, mm-hmm. you could deal with how we do things or not. That's Absolutely. Cool. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. They just send you a box of like wool and they're like, you have to put it together yourself. Just figure it out. <laughs> I would do it. That's good. I like that because you're giving the gift of something warm to someone you love. That's yeah. kind of sweet. Very cozy. So besides being an artist, what other jobs have you done? I was an artist assistant or I guess artist intern for a little while with uh Anna Fiddler who um god where does she live now I think Eugene Corvallis she she teaches down at U of O I thought it was OSU anyways Anna Fiddler is awesome she is a painter um I let's see when I graduated from grad school I was working in restaurants for a while which I kind of liked I, before moving here, I worked for Penguin Books, uh, and I also worked for a book manufacturer, um, and I mentor a grad student. I think that's a job, sort of. Yeah. What was your first job, I should say? My first job was Starbucks, but I I never learned to make any drinks. I was just a cashier, because it was a really fancy Starbucks where we had alcohol, so I couldn't be behind the bar. But Were you telling me it was the first Starbucks? Or no, it was no. the first one with food or something, right? It was a cafe Starbucks, mm. not to be confused with a Starbucks cafe. We were a restaurant, uh, mm. like half restaurant, half cafe. Howard Schultz would come in on a daily basis and order a double short, extra short latte or something. I don't know. He's very tall. But he likes his drinks short. He does. <laughs> extra short. <laughs> nice. Mm-hmm. What, is your, what would your superpower be? I could choose anything. 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 I admit, I admit that I thought about this beforehand. And I decided that I would have the confidence of a rich white man. Oh, wow. Doesn't that sound like really amazing? Yeah. I never thought of that. What would you do? What would the first thing you, with that confidence, I would, like, would you do? I would talk about my art in public and I oh, wouldn't okay. worry or have anxiety. Just I'd probably like, be making hundreds of thousands of dollars a year. <laughs> I, I don't know. I think about my own anxiety about talking about my work and, and trying to get it right. Um, but I think, 
I don't know. I, I just think that there is a level of confidence that some people are born with that sounds really nice. Um, but I would, I would enjoy. How do I say this without coming across as a giant jerk? I feel like I say that every interview or ever. Maybe I, you should just start too. with that. <laughs> or but just go with it. Go, I'm people just going to go with it. Think it. Totally, I know. Kendra they, the jerk is about to say think, something. They always, they always <laughs> think I'm a jerk. Um, where is I going with this? Oh, if you're too confident, if you're not, um, if you're not hesitant about your work, then that wouldn't that just like ruin the process of painting? I mean, I for one like being neurotic and and not knowing where my work is going and being a little nervous about things and trying things and experimenting because that moves the work forward. If I was too confident, then I wouldn't have as much fun in the studio. I guess I mean it less in the studio and more outside the studio when trying to. Um find opportunities okay um yeah. so I confidence just, you could think, turn on and off yeah 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 no i i do think that like my overthinking and worrying in some ways can be generative in the studio but at a certain point i think um i don't know it would be nice to have more ease mm -hmm. ashley do you have a superpower that you would has it changed since our last interview that was, like, yours was very interesting. Like, I never I thought about that. So now I keep thinking about that. You could just copy her. Okay. Well, yeah, I just, like, I, I understand, though, because, like, I don't always have the confidence to talk about my work, but it'd be great to be that kind of person that just, like, just knows it and, like, this is what I am and buy all my things mm -hmm. because I'm the greatest around. But, no, yeah, like, I think mine is my favorite superpower is still... Would be invisible. <laughs> just, to, just to be invisible. Sneak around, go all the places. Yeah. There's a certain confidence in that. Yeah. There you go. Yeah. I mean, I, I think as an artist, um, something I struggle with is just that question of, does this work deserve to exist? Mm -hmm. There are so many paintings in the world. And I actually spend a lot of time, like, looking at artists that I really respect and, like, breaking down, why does this work deserve to exist? Like... Um, how do those same things function in my work? Um, but I think that there are artists and not necessarily rich white men, but there are artists who don't have that question about their work of does this deserve to exist or not, who just bounce on to the next question. Um, and I think that for me, that is a very valuable question, but also something that sometimes I would like to turn off because I think there's a time and a place for questioning that but also time and a place for just digging in and making your work. And I'm always sort of seeking to find better balance on that. Yeah. Well, and Ashley, like, a lot of people don't make wigs. So I think, I mean, I'm assuming that um, part of the, I mean, I'm assuming that part of the question for you is whether or not they actually want to hear about it, right? And I think, I personally think it's really cool and interesting, and I'd love to hear more about what you are doing, you know? Because I think, I think, I guess what I'm saying is like with painting, like we could talk about our artwork because generally people know what painting involves. But with wig making, it's like you have, to, you could talk about your work, but you also have to educate people what it, what it, what it is, you know, what you're doing. Yeah. If finding the right time and place and whether or not they want to hear about it. Yeah. That kind of thing. Yeah. So. What's next for you? <laughs> anything coming up that you want to talk about or uh, right now I'm kind of hibernating uh, I had a bunch of shows in a row uh, last year through this last January um, 
just kind of trying to dig in in the studio and um, kind of process what I made and figure out a next step. And I, I don't want to rush that. I feel like it's really important. And right now I feel like I've like super figured it out and everything's great. Um, I'm not very trustworthy on that though. So, you know, ask me in two weeks. Um, but I feel like it's just really important right now to be um, just in the studio and um, I feel like I've, I've been waffling back and forth on whether to make the easy work or to make the hard work. Mm -hmm. I'm trying to dig in on the hard work, the paintings that, um, the paintings that can fail, paintings that I don't know where they're going to go in the beginning and just need to follow them. Um, and yeah, so that feels really important. Um, nice. You mentioned LA earlier, like, like a lot of women artists there, um, mm -hmm. You think they're supported a lot more there than here, maybe, or just more known? Uh, I get the sense that they're more supported. I, I feel like I see them finding lots of opportunity, but I also think that they have a lot of community down there in a really wonderful way that I think we all struggle at having enough of that in Portland. Yeah, and I think for me it's just really exciting to get a window into what's happening somewhere else. And these artists that I follow... Um, like, I don't know, like Rebecca Morris and Amy Bessany. Yeah, just a lot of people that, that seem to be making work without hesitation. Um, and are you going to stick with the rose circles of roses kind of and, and uh, figurines as your kind of subject launching off point for this new work that you're working on? Or do you not, you just don't know yet? They're all kind of like still lifes right now, but they're imagined objects that okay. um, kind of based on vessels um sort of figurine but without the kitsch um trying to stay away from flowers for a little while to see what happens uh oh that's something i was going to ask you i don't want to go backwards we can but go backwards christopher could cut this out and put it back um is i noticed flowers and cherries in your work um which seem overtly feminine is there anything that you feel is too overt or too obvious to put in a painting? I've been shying away from putting breasts in paintings. Okay. Yeah. Or vaginas or... I mean, flowers. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Um, oh, yeah, I guess. I mean, I guess, I guess to answer that, um, I have been making a conscious choice not to paint the figure, which is something that I've, I've painted the figure for a really long time. That was always my passion for a long time, but I just... Um, eventually had to really put my foot down and say no more to that for now, in part because a lot of the figures that I was painting were influenced by fashion magazines. So there's already this element of um, someone else's choice of who gets seen. And I, I, I didn't want to be the artist who's putting more pictures of skinny, pretty white women into the world. And I also just, I, as I think about the idea of ob objectification and, uh, empowerment versus disempowerment of the pictured figure it just didn't feel like a priority or or like a like a good choice for me anymore so I think that's the thing that's intentionally missing that is obviously overtly feminine but I think there are other ways for me to explore the body without actually representing it you might have already asked answered this but like uh is there anything you definitely would not ever put in your paintings whether a certain color palette or object or theme. Yeah, I, 
it's like I, I don't feel like I have one answer instead it's like there are so many things that I don't want to put in my paintings um <laughs> that's what I, David said he said 99% of things would not go in my paintings yeah so I just yeah. found that like, very interesting yeah it kind of makes yeah I I feel like I there's part of me that wants to just dive into abstraction and yet I I enjoy form I enjoy figure and I also think that like going back to the idea of the familiar like I really want there to be some sort of object in my work that that helps the viewer come in and then maybe discover painterly moments I don't want to represent a real scene I don't want to create a narrative um I want to strip almost everything out and have yeah, very little left. Mm-hmm. Well, thank you, Anya thank you. Roberts Tony, for coming and talking thank you with so us much today. for having me.